Today's message, as you are aware and you see in your bulletins, is entitled Faith or Works. We continue our series in the whole truth. We're dealing with the whole truth in this series. And today we'll be talking about faith uh, and works. Now, some of you probably are familiar with the story. It took place not too long ago. You heard about the son of Sam, Killer. It was David Richard Berzowitz, and he had terrorized New York City for months. Apparently, he had killed six victims and injured seven others. He was indicted on eight shooting incidences, and uh, he confessed to all of them and claimed that he'd been obeying the orders of a demon manifested in the form of a dog by the name of Harvey, who belonged to his neighbor, Sam, hence the son of Sam. Everyone was relieved when he was arrested. Now, with all the media coverage, it came out that he had earlier gone forward and he had made a decision for Jesus at a very fast-growing church in Kentucky. On hearing this, one woman responded on national TV, well, at least he was a Christian. At least he was a Christian? What does a statement like this tell you about this woman's idea about Christian faith? Is it possible that she not only, she's not the only one with a warped understanding of what it means to be a Christian? Why was the statement absurd? Isn't it true that we're saved by grace through faith and not according to works? Could the son of Sam Killer have, been, had, have had genuine faith despite his actions? <laughs> On the other hand, doesn't Scripture constantly call us to obedience to God? And doesn't it consistently teach that we are judged by our works? What does God really want of you and of me? Does He want us to believe or does He want us to do? What does He want from us? Or does He want both? How do we understand the relationship between faith and works? The debate over faith and works is as old as the New Testament itself. Protestant Christianity has rightly focused on faith as the only requirement for salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Unfortunately, that has often implied that what a person does, or at least some people have taken it to mean that what a person does, is of no importance. In effect, people just say, and you've heard it said, just believe. It doesn't matter what you do. How did anyone end up concluding that it doesn't matter what a follower of Jesus does? How did anyone end up concluding that? Unfortunately, this confusion is just one example of the many views of faith that don't do justice to the biblical teaching. Now, these types of views leave us with a faith that will not accomplish our salvation. Uh, Someone wrote that such faith is the same as having no faith at all, and I would tend to agree. So, we asked the question this morning, what does faith really mean? Isn't it simplistic to think that faith alone is enough to save us? And let's ask the question as well while we're at it, how do works fit in to the scheme of things? So, we go back to our Scripture reading to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where we have a very clear biblical definition of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, and we read verse 1. 
It says, Hebrews 11 verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So if you want to know what faith is, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us. It is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, before we get too much into describing and defining what faith is and just kind of breaking this down a little bit, let's first set aside some misconceptions regarding what faith is. There probably are more, but let's look at four misconceptions about faith. So here we go. Number one, number one, faith is not a one-time decision. We're just going to kind of roll over that, that uh, that, that cow, if I could put it that way. Faith is not a one-time decision. Ask a person about his or her faith, and you might hear about an experience that took place on such and such a date, on such and such a time, way back in the past, maybe five, maybe 10, maybe 30, maybe 40 years ago. Perhaps because we have placed a necessary emphasis on the need to make a decision for Christ, some that some well-meaning saints think that is all, that faith is all that really is needed, a one-time decision. That's all that faith involves, a one-time decision. You need to make a decision for Christ, and it's right that we say that. It is correct that we say that, but perhaps some people have heard that, and they think that perhaps just that one-time decision constitutes faith. Those who espouse that type of thinking usually also tend to believe in a concept known as eternal security. The belief that if a person was once saved, he or she is always saved. You can never be lost. You are saved at this point in your life, and you can never be lost. Eternal security. But there is no security in this type of faith. Of course, we know that the problem is that a perfect Lucifer became a perfect devil. The problem is that Adam and Eve were truly made in the image of God, but they fell away. The Scriptures tell us that King Saul, after the Spirit came upon him, would be, be a changed man. Turn with me to 1 Samuel, if you'd be so kind. 1 Samuel chapter 10, let's look at verses 6 and 9. The Bible, speaking of King Saul, talks about an actual change that came over him. So 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 6, notice what it says. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and be turned into what? another man. And that doesn't refer to his, um, his, his body or his looks, his external features. It's talking about his heart. We know that when we look at verse 9. So it, was, it, so it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him what? Another heart. Gave Saul another heart. All those signs came to pass that day. Now this old, or these Old Testament phrases could have come right out of the New Testament lexicon of born-again theology. King Saul was a truly changed man, according to what we read. Amen? There's no doubt about that. But he sadly turned away from the Lord. He was truly saved, but then he became sadly, truly lost. So Saul went from being saved to lost. Simon Magus believed in Acts chapter 8, verses 13 and 21. He believed, but he so misconstrued God's purposes that Peter told him that he would have no share in the gospel. You see, salvation isn't a transaction worked out with God at some point in time only, nor is faith some warm, fuzzy feeling we had in response to some emotional revival that we attended over a weekend. 
Too many people find a false security in some act of the past. Now, if faith is merely a decision on our part, then we have turned faith into a human work, something we do to accomplish our salvation. Decision is important, and one must make a decision for Christ, amen, surely. But this doesn't constitute all that, faith, that biblical faith is. So number one, faith is not a one-time decision. Number two, faith is not a system of doctrine. Faith is not a system of doctrine. While doctrine is crucial in that it gives us a correct view of God and His truth, we must understand that faith is more than an affair of the mind. It is not merely what we think, although as Christians, we ought to think. Amen? We ought to be intelligent individuals. We must think, you see. It's not merely, faith is not merely what we think. We are not Christians because we believe certain facts or theology to be true. Just as decision is important, so are the facts of truth important as well. We cannot be Christians without believing that certain things are true. Fundamentally, the death, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. The, the, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, these things are facts. These things we must believe. But faith cannot be reduced down to just doctrines. James chapter 2, verse 9, turn there with me. James chapter 2, verse 19, rather, says something very interesting about the devil. James chapter 2 and verse 19, it says, You believe that there is one God, you do, you do well. These folk believed a fact. They believed a theory, or at least a fact. They believed a theology. Verse 19, even the devil's demons believe in what? Tremble. The demons, demons believe in tremble. You see, James 2.19 tells us that demons believe, demons fear, which ought to make those of us with merely a rational faith very uncomfortable. And so faith is not merely a system of doctrines. Number three, faith is not the ability to believe the unbelievable. Faith is not the ability to believe the unbelievable. Faith is not, as a little boy put it, believing what you know isn't true. Faith is not that way at all. Faith is defined in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 that we read earlier, as the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. Not seen should not be confused with impossibilities. When faith is understood as the quantity of the amount of believing that we do, it borders on being understood perhaps as magic, and that is not faith. So faith is not the ability to believe the unbelievable. And number four, faith is not a set of rules. Faith is not a set of rules. How we live as Christians is extremely important, but rules are not faith. Rules are not faith. To suggest that they are is to give merit to our faith, to give merit to our faith. It is common for people to keep the rules, to appear to be good, and still have no faith. The Pharisee, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, kept all the rules. He even listed them off, lifted his head to heaven and said, God, I'm glad I'm, you know, I've done this and I've done that, and I'm glad I'm not like that publican that's standing over there. The Bible teaches and Jesus teaches us that he didn't experience forgiveness because his heart was filled with pride. He appeared to be good. He was living by a set of rules, but he didn't experience salvation. 
A person can perform numerous religious acts and attend endless religious meetings, and that would be a good thing. But they can still do that without genuine faith. Just as faith is not what we think, neither is faith what we necessarily do. The root problem with these four areas and and these other misconceptions is the assumption that faith is merely a part-time job. It's just something that we do kind of on the side. Tell me what decision to make. Tell me what doctrines to believe. Tell me what acts I need to perform so I can get them behind me and get on with my life. That's what those four assumptions about faith teach us. But faith is not something that you and I can put behind us. We can't just check in at the beginning of the day and check out at the, at the end of the day when it comes to faith. These misconceptions provide a valid element of faith, yes, absolutely, no doubt about it, but they don't adequately describe faith. So essentially, and listen carefully, biblical faith, biblical faith requires all that we are. Biblical faith requires all that we are. Faith actually involves the intellect, it involves the will, and it involves the emotions. It takes in all of our being. That's why Jesus warned would-be disciples to count the cost before they would follow Him. He said, count the cost, figure it out, look at it carefully before you follow me, because when you're going to follow me, it's going to involve all of you. It's going to involve your mind, your intellect, your will. It's going to involve your emotions. It's going to involve all of you. It's also the reason that Paul directs Christians to test themselves to see whether they're actually in the faith. And you can read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Peter even mentions it as well and says, make sure that your calling and your election is sure, you see. The concern of the Bible, the concern of Scripture is not, that our, not for our feelings of our security. The Bible is not interested in our feelings of security, but for the reality of our faith. That's what the Bible, that's what God is concerned with. You remember the rich young ruler, you see, he came to Jesus and he was seeking security about eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus tell him? What did Jesus tell him? Go sell what you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. And the Bible records a very sad occurrence that took place. We're told that the rich young ruler went away sorrowful. And he went away sad when Jesus confronted him about the shallowness of his thinking, the shallowness of his understanding with regard to what it means to follow Jesus, you see. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about himself being the bread of life. He was the manna that fell from heaven. He's the bread of life. Eat, he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you won't have a part of me. Of course, he's not referring to cannibalism in any way. Later on, he says, the, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. They are spirit and they are life. Take in my words, take in deep drafts of all that I'm teaching you, that I'm telling you and that I'm showing you in my life and, and, and you'll become a part of me is what he was telling, telling us, telling his disciples back then. And those that were listening to him, thinking that they were going to crown him a king of Israel, Messiah, left him. The Bible says never to follow him again. Why? Because they didn't count the cost. They did not understand what it meant to follow Jesus. They didn't understand that it would require all of them, all that they were to follow the Messiah, to follow the Savior of the world, you see. 
is it easy enough to say faith encompasses all that we are? Perhaps we'd be inclined to think, have I thought, have I done, have I felt enough? And then do I have enough faith? (laughs) If we were inclined to think that, perhaps to say that faith encompasses all that we are, then still isn't enough. Could it be that it is most of all a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Could it be? Let's see. Now, the Bible presents God as a God who seeks His people. God is the one who's pursuing planet Earth. He's pursuing you and me. And He's established a covenant. The Bible calls it an everlasting covenant. He's established a covenant relationship with His people. And you see that both in the Old and you see that also in the New Testaments. The word testament actually means covenant. Uh, In other words, God commits Himself to a relationship with His people. That's what the covenant is. The covenant is based on promises made by two parties on certain, with certain requirements, you see. And so the covenant is God committing Himself to a relationship with His people. He promises to be their God, and He promises to be faithful to them. And on the other hand, we are asked to affirm our relationship with God, and to be faithful to the covenant in the way that we live our life connected to Jesus, you see. So in order to understand what biblical faith is, we need to do so in connection to this covenant relationship. To understand faith, we need to understand what it is in connection to the, this everlasting covenant, this covenant relationship. We need to see faith as an expression of this covenant. Faith then could be considered as a life lived in this covenant relationship with God. It is our response to the relationship that God has established. Could it be said that faith is a response? Could it be said that faith is considered, is a life considered living, living in this covenant relationship, a life in response into this relationship that God has established. Could it be? That's what faith is. And when we go back to the Old Testament, God established a covenant with Israel, and He lived in the midst of His people. As a matter of fact, the wilderness sanctuary uh, and the permanent temple in Jerusalem taught both the terms of entering into that covenant relationship as well as maintaining that covenant relationship. There was no getting around the fact when you read the Old Testament that God just wanted to dwell in the midst of His people. That's what God has always wanted, amen? Wants to be with His people, wants to have a a relationship with His people. In the New Testament, the terms and conditions haven't changed, not at all. Instead of an earthly sanctuary, we have a shadow, we have the substance rather of the shadow in Jesus Christ, who was the lamb that was slain and who is our high priest ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. His life, His death, His resurrection, and His high priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, He was the substance that met the shadow that all of those, uh, all of those ceremonies pointed forward to, you see. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. John said He was God who, He was, he was uh, the Word made flesh, and He tabernacled with you and with me. And through Christ, The Holy Spirit continues to dwell with His people as the church, who He is building up to become a, what did Peter call you and me, the church? A living what? 
a living temple. As a matter of fact, it gets even more personal because in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 and in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God just wants to dwell with His people. Can you say amen out there? There's no doubt about that. And this is what the covenant relationship is about. Uh, God bringing His people to His side, you see, entering into that saving relationship with God. Now, usually when we think of a relationship with God, we use the language of God or Christ living in us. Uh, we go to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, and we're told that Jesus is standing at the door and He's what? Knocking at the door of our hearts, and He wants to do what? Come in. So we normally talk about, uh, when we think of this relationship with God, we, we use the language of Jesus living in our hearts. We say that when we've, ex we've accepted Jesus, we've accepted Him into our hearts and our minds, and if we were to say that, we would be 100% correct. There would be nothing wrong with that at all. And when Paul wrote, for example, he rarely spoke of Christ in us. He did speak of Christ in us. There's no doubt about that. He, uh, some have suggested about five times I've counted, and it's about that or just a little bit more. On the other hand, he uses a phrase over 100 times, and that phrase is being in Christ. It is good for Jesus to be in us, but we also need to be in Christ. It is possible it is possible that with our usual picture, and some have mistaken it this way, and it's not the Bible's fault, it's not God's fault, it's not the church's fault, but some people just have a wild imagination. Sometimes people have a usual picture that Jesus is about two inches tall, and we usher into Him into some corner of our hearts, but we ultimately are still the ones in control of our lives. That's the picture that some people have. To speak of ourselves, however, in Christ can reverse that image. Our whole being is in Christ. It is in the Lord of the universe. You see, we are members of Jesus' body. We are made a part of Christ, according to Ephesians 5 and verse 30. And at the same time, we are made part of other Christians as well. And you can read that in the same book, chapter 4, verse 25. See, authentic faith is relational. Authentic faith is relational. Christians are people who live in in Christ, and reciprocally, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, lives in them. That's a wonderful thing to consider. It is as if Christ were a sphere, and we live our lives in that sphere. Our lives are to be lived out within that sphere, you see. Jesus said, and we can understand this probably another way, when Jesus said, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and you are the what? We are the branches, that's exactly right, you see. As the, the branch is connected, fused, grafted into the stock, into the vine, so our lives, us, we Christians, are to be so connected to Jesus, who is the true vine, you see. To have faith, to have faith is to live in and with Christ just as He lived in harmony with His Father and let that relationship direct and order His footsteps and His life. So what does it mean to live in Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? Mostly it means, mostly it means that we understand, we identify, we experience the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives. In other words, we are so united to Him by faith that His death is our death and His life is our life. 
Faith for Paul, faith for the Apostle Paul involved both dying with Christ and rising to a new life in Jesus. Perhaps the best definition of faith could be summed up in Paul's words in Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. If you'd be so kind to turn there with me, let's take a look at what he said over here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Ephesians 2, sorry, Galatians 2, 19 and 20. Thank you for keeping me straight. I certainly appreciate that. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul, the Bible says Paul, life, his life involved both dying in, with Christ and rising to a new life with Jesus Christ. One of the, probably one of the best descriptions, definitions of faith in the Bible. Living for Jesus, dying to self, just as Jesus died for you and for me. Now go over to Philippians chapter 3, because it, we want to keep building on this idea. At least we want to see what the, how the Bible builds on this idea. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. I want you to notice here, we're talking about a covenant relationship, experiencing the death and resurrection of Jesus, being grafted to the vine, the branch connected to the vine. Let's go on. Philippians chapter, uh, what did I say? Philippians chapter 3. There it is. Verses 7 through 10. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. But what things were gained to me, this is Paul speaking, Paul writing, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I might what? Gain Christ. Man, he goes on, we're going to keep reading, but just, just reflect on those words for a moment. He was willing to give up his reputation. He was willing to give up his social status. He was willing to, to give up his, if he had riches, his riches. He was willing to give up so that he may gain Jesus. Can it be said of us that we are willing to give up those things and gain Jesus? Can it be said that we are willing to do these things to gain Jesus, the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Now notice, notice he wanted to gain Jesus. Notice verse 9, and be found where? In him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That Now notice, he goes on to speak about this experience of faith. He said, that I may what? Know him. That I may know him. Now, you know the Bible well. And you know that when the Bible says that when, when in John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus uh, prayed to the Father and, and prayed that we would come to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. To know God is to love God. To, lo to know God is to love God. To love God is to give our lives to God and to serve God. To know God is to enter into an intimate, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That was Paul's desire 
That's what he wanted more than anything, that I may gain Christ, that I may know him. And notice, I also want to know what? The power of his resurrection. I don't want the old self to just to rise like it does. I want it to be dead. I want to know the power of the resurrected Christ in my life. I want to know what it means to be free from sin, to live above sin, to live a victorious life in Jesus. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I also want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, you know, if it were me, I'm not sure I'd be so keen to want to enter into the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. You look at the life of Jesus, and Jesus' life was, he was hounded by spies. I mean, you just go back to when he was a child, you read in that beautiful, inspired commentary on the life of Jesus, Desire of Ages, where Jesus was misunderstood even by his parents, ridiculed by his siblings, misunderstood, and yet he continued to do what was right. And we entered into his ministry as Messiah, entered into that wilderness, tempted became victorious, entered into villages and towns and preached. People didn't understand him. He was driven out of towns. He was hounded by spies who were trying to trip trip him up, corner him so that they could destroy him. And then ultimately, Jesus would come into this world to bear the sins of the world. Do we desire to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings? to know what it means to suffer as Jesus suffered. That doesn't mean that we would bear the sins of the world. Jesus did that, and we can freely give him our sins and our guilt, and they are washed away. The burden has been lifted and has been rolled off, and we are free indeed in Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But when we serve Jesus, we'll experience what Jesus endured. What was the greatest thing that Jesus must have suffered? Apart from Gethsemane and the cross, probably when people left him to follow him and serve him no more. The most difficult thing that I have to experience as a pastor and that you would experience too as you witness and share your faith with others is people who would turn their lives completely and away from you because you believe a certain way and you follow Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about me. It actually hit Jesus first. It affected Jesus. Tears would roll down his eyes as they would yours, as they have mine, when people do not respond to to the call of Jesus on their life. Enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. And he doesn't end there. He says, I want to gain Jesus. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of of his sufferings. And I want to be conformed unto his what? Death. Is that your desire today? to be conformed unto Jesus' death. The old man, the old woman, being dead to sin. Sometimes we like it when he rises up occasionally, speaks a word or two in our favor. But Paul said, I want to know him. I want to be conformed to his death. In these verses, we see Paul renounce, essentially, all that he had value for him that he may gain. Jesus Christ. His desire was to be found in Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, to be conformed to the likeness of his death. Paul described this process as being conformed to his death. The words may seem strange to us, but they are merely a variation of Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, when he said, if anyone wishes to follow me, let that person deny himself. 
herself, take up his cross, and follow me. We gain life essentially by giving it away, by losing it. To identify, to embrace, to experience the death of Jesus simply means a break in our relationship with sin and to the things and customs of this world that are opposed to God. A politician who was a Republican and then became a Democrat probably uh, would not be welcome at a Republican rally or vice versa. Should we feel similar discomfort when we leave God out of our picture? Identifying with the resurrection of Jesus, experiencing the resurrection of Christ means that we transfer lordship. No longer am I Lord of my life, but Jesus Christ is Lord of my life, you see. Christ is now Lord and not my own interests, not my own pursuits, not my own aspirations. They are now merged together. As a politician, as, as our politician who changed parties would be instructed by a new party platform, we too have realigned our lives and we too have a new agenda as we follow Jesus. And this, friend, all takes place at conversion. It all takes place at conversion and it is testified to at baptism. But it is not just an act of the past. While it is and did take place in the past, it is also very much present and it also very much is future. We are to experience the death and the resurrection of Jesus daily. It is the pattern for our lives. We also anticipate the future with the death and the resurrection will be a reality if the Lord doesn't come first for some of us. Those that do pass on to their graves will experience the resurrection power when Jesus calls you from your dusty bed and arise, causes you to arise to sleep no more. What a day that's going to be when Jesus comes back, that we may know him. That's what Paul wanted. And I pray that's what we want. Often in discussions of faith, people often ask, well, how much faith is enough? How much is my part? How much is God's part? To speak of faith as being in Christ essentially removes all need for these types of questions. Faith is no longer viewed as a quantity of believing. If I can just add up my believing points, then I'll have enough and that should be sufficient. Faith is not what we are able to conjure up. Instead, it is our living in that covenant, in that saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We cannot separate our part from God's part, but because He is the vine and we are the branches, He abides in us and we abide in Him, you see. In the book, Christ Object Lessons, page 311, talking about the, righteous, the righteousness of Christ, the, the robe of Christ's righteousness. Listen to the way Ellen White defines the righteousness of Christ. She says, when we submit ourselves to Christ, when the heart is united with his heart, when the will is merged in his will, when the mind becomes one with his mind, the thoughts are brought into captivity to his, we live his life. This is what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Wow. Heart united to his heart, will merged in his will, mind connected with his mind, thoughts brought into the captivity to Christ. We essentially live the life of Jesus. Wow. Powerful. All that is available for you and for me is remarkable.
So to say that a person has faith is to not speak of what that person does. Rather, it is to focus the attention on the God in whom our faith is placed. To say, I have faith then, is to say that God is faithful and that God is a trustworthy and faithful God. That's what it means. And someone's going to say, well, isn't that just too simplistic a focus on faith? Isn't life more complex than that, especially the Christian life? Isn't it possible that we can be as easy, it could be as easy as that? And if it is as easy as that, that's why probably you hear some people say, just have faith and everything will be all right. Life is complex and faith is not magic so that we can escape life's struggles, life's sufferings, and life's death. Faith understood as a saving relationship with God is not simplistic. To understand it is simple, but it is not simplistic. It doesn't seek to get things finished with God, put them behind us so we can get on with our lives. Nor does it seek to escape the difficult questions that life pose. Rather, it faces life in the presence of God. It faces life in the presence of God. Still, there have always been attempts to say that faith was too simplistic and that something else was needed to be added. In fact, several New Testament epistles were written to reject the idea that something else needed to be added to faith in Christ. In Galatians, the problem was Jesus plus the ceremonial law. In 1 Corinthians, it was Jesus plus spiritual gifts. And in Colossians, to the church in Colossia, it was Jesus plus a spiritual experience. In each case, Paul didn't allow for something to be added to faith in Christ. You know, church history has also witnessed various theories. The Puritans, they stressed faith and assurance of salvation. Pentecostals, they argue for faith plus the baptism of the Spirit. Wesleyans, which in whichever form, have stressed faith and entire sanctification. The answers to all of these attempts is the same as Paul gave centuries ago in Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and all you need. You cannot have Jesus as Savior. Listen carefully now. You cannot have Jesus as Savior without Him being your Lord. It's not possible. You cannot be a Christian without the presence of the Holy Spirit. For it is the Spirit that accomplishes conversion and writes God's law in our hearts and in our minds, you see. There is no such thing as faith without obedience. There is no such thing as faith without sanctification. It's embodied in the concept of biblical faith. Faith is enough, for faith binds us to the Lord of the universe in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Faith has an adhesive quality. Sometimes we could consider faith as Velcro. Stuff sticks to it. We are stuck to Christ. It attaches us to Jesus because Jesus is sufficient. You've got to believe that today. So we talked about faith. What about works? Where do works all fit in? What role do they play in our lives of faith? When Paul presented the gospel, he presented a gospel of faith not apart from works. Now, we can read some statements pretty quickly, like in Romans chapter 3, where it seems as though he separates faith and works. It seems as though he presents the gospel apart from works. 
But did, did he mean that works were unimportant, as some have maintained? And when you go to the book of James, James says faith without works is what? Dead. Did he mean that faith was not sufficient, but you needed works as well? <laughs> some Christians get stuck because they see a contradiction between the letters of Paul and the letters of James. Actually, there is nothing contradictory in their teaching since they are dealing with two different pro problems. Ultimately, both reject the perversions of the gospel. In his letter, James is concerned about those whose faith has no effect in their lives. James, his purpose is to show the difference between a dead faith or and an alive faith or a true faith. And you can read that in James chapter 2, verses 17, 18, and 26. His conclusion is that any faith that is not active faith resulting in acts of love is not faith at all. Dead faith, in other words, he says, is not valid faith. And Paul would say the same thing. He would say the same thing. If we ask Paul, did Paul know of a faith that doesn't work? The answer is a resounding no, no. In Paul's letters, uh, it's interesting, the plural word works, works, often as acts, as shorthand, often acts as shorthands, uh, shorthand expressions for the works of the law, which refers to human effort to present oneself righteous before God, which is an impossibility for us to do. In this context, the word is almost wholly viewed as negative, interestingly enough. On the other hand, when Paul used the word work in the singular, it is almost in a positive, does so in a positive term that refers to the productive life of faith. It is this latter sense of the term that James is concerned with, and his conclusions are one to which the Apostle Paul would say a hearty amen. Faith apart from works would not be acceptable to Paul. I want to take you to a few Bible verses now. Just flip with me to several verses. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 2. We'll look at three Bible verses here where Paul does not separate works from faith. Faith apart from works would not be acceptable to Paul. It's not acceptable to God. Notice what he wrote here. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 2 in the great love chapter he says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have what? All faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am what? Nothing. So right here, Paul, Paul shows that faith has an expression in acts of what? Love. And if it, faith doesn't have an expression in love, then you and I are nothing, you see. How about Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6? Go over there with me. Just before Ephesians, right after 2 Corinthians, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. <clears throat> Notice what Paul says again with regard to the relationship between faith and works. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. Paul says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. That's right. Faith working through love. So there it is again. Paul doesn't separate the two you see. Faith actually, according to Paul, works. And what type of works does it do? Works of love. 
Works of love, works of charity, you see. And then go over to a parallel passage back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. Notice this is a parallel passage. Notice what he goes on to say here. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. He just got through telling us that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. But notice what he says. But keeping what? The commandments of God is what matters. So according to Paul, genuine faith obeys. Genuine faith keeps God's commandments. Such passages like these can be multiplied over and over and over again. And the result will be the same. Uh, as uh, We are, as 1 Corinthians 15, 58 puts it, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what the Bible, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what Paul taught. There is no such thing as faith without obedience. In fact, Paul sometimes uses faith and obedience interchangeably. In Romans chapter 10, verse 16, he said, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Did you notice how he uses the word believed and obey uh, interchangeably? He's quoting Isaiah. And Isaiah says, who has believed our report? And Paul takes that statement and says, not everyone has believed, not everyone has obeyed, you see. So Paul often uses the word faith and obedience interchangeably. Uh, Paul summarizes his missionary purpose as seeking the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. So when we consider the message of Jesus, the result is the same. Everywhere there is an expectation that a life connected to God involves loving obedience to God and then, of course, love to our neighbors. There is no such thing as salvation without obedience. Someone rightly said, we cannot have faith without being faithful. We cannot have faith without being faithful. The only time that there might be a conflict between faith and works is when there is a misunderstanding of one or the other. There is no contradiction between faith and works because properly understood, faith encompasses works and necessitates productive living. In other words, faith works, but it doesn't use its works to prove to God or anyone else that the believer is more righteous than anybody else, you see. When you and I make a decision in keeping with our faith that does not make us more presentable to God and it does not make us better than anybody else. This is what faith just does. Faith just works. Faith just does God's will. It has a new agenda and it seeks to work it out in the life. A life of good works is not separated from faith. It grows out of a saving relationship we have with God by faith. Good works are only made possible by faith. And I want to take you to one last verse as we close. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. You know the verse as well. <clears throat> Paul wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created 
in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. We are saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to read a statement to you as I close from Faith and Works, and it's found on page 48 and 49. I'm going to ask, is Will, Will, are you here? Where are you, Will? William, is, are you here? I've asked William to do something for me on the piano. There he is. Hey, praise the Lord, there he is. I'm going to just step down here. I'm going to read this statement to you, and uh, William's going to play for us something in just a little bit. But let me just begin by reading this quote. Faith and works go hand in hand. They act harmoniously in the work of overcoming. Now, William has two hands. Hold them up, William. (laughs) William's got two hands. When William plays with his left hand on the piano, what what does the song sound like? He's going to be playing... Faith is the victory, which is our closing hymn. So he's going to play that just once for a couple of verses here. So we'll take Will's left hand as faith. Then we'll take Will's right hand as works. Let's hear what the right hand sounds like without the left. sounded nice, didn't it? But didn't sound quite complete. Now, if we ask William to play with both hands. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you, William. Appreciate that. See, she says that faith and works go hand in hand. They act harmoniously in the work of overcoming. Cannot be separated, you see. If you want life, your life to produce beautiful music for Jesus, you're going to have to have faith and works, you see. She goes on to say, works without faith are dead, and faith without works is dead. Works will never save us. It is the merit of Christ that will avail on our behalf. Through faith in Him, Christ will make all our imperfect efforts acceptable to God. The faith we are required to have is not a do-nothing faith. Saving faith is that which works by love and purifies the soul. He who will lift up holy hands to God without wrath and doubting will walk intelligently in the way of God's commandments. And she closes by saying, faith and works will keep us evenly balanced and make us successful in the work of perfecting Christian character. Faith and works. An attempt at good works without faith in God is as futile as the branch of a peach tree trying to produce peaches separated from the peach tree. By faith we respond to God's grace, and that grace works in us to the extent that we live faithfully for God. Obedience 
Productive living are absolutely essential aspects of faith. Some have misunderstood Paul and ended up with a do-nothing religion. No wonder there are Christians who don't mind disobeying God or living a faithless life. Some are like those in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, who profess to know God but by their works deny Him. People who are, quote, detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good deed. The words are harsh. But the biblical message is that either one lives the life of faith or one does not have the life. You remember Abraham, the father of the faithful? The Bible says that he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was called by God to leave Ur of the Chaldees. He left at God's call. Did faith work? Faith worked. Faith obeyed. And throughout his traversing through the promised land, that land that would be given to his ancestors, the children of Israel, Abraham's faith worked. He made some mistakes along the way. He messed up a couple of times. But God exonerates Abraham and his faith before you and before me. He had to take his son up to the top of that mountain. You remember the story? He took him up there because God had said, I want you to offer up your son as a sacrifice. And so Abraham's faith worked again. And then in obedience went up that mountain with his son. Laid him down, built the altar, laid him on the altar, raised the knife into the sky. And then the Bible says that God sent an angel to stay the hand of Abraham. And God said, don't do it. I provided a ram in the thicket. That will be your sacrifice. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and was satisfied. In that act, Jesus saw the greatest sacrifice of all in God sending his son to die for you and for me. He did that so that we might enter into that covenant saving relationship with God, that we might be saved into his eternal kingdom to be with him and to live with him forever. The question for us here today, as it always is, have we and are we experiencing that life of faith in Jesus? Are we in, in that covenant relationship with God? Are we in that saving relationship with Him? Does Jesus have our hearts? Does Jesus have our minds? Does Jesus have our hands? Are we living that life of faith that works by love, that purifies the soul? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.